The Start On Demand. demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Monday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Over the weekend, I did something I've never done before. My girlfriend took me to get a pedicure. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. Also, we're going to go into details on the story of a good Samaritan who stepped in to try to help a homeless man who was being attacked by two thugs outside the A&W on Portage right across from Polo Park. And then he got beat up for his efforts. Would you step in? CAA has produced the results of a new study that says young Canadians are at risk for a vehicle crash five hours after they have taken, after they have inhaled cannabis. So we'll get into that a little bit. Kelly Moore is going to join us to talk about a big weekend for Winnipeg sports teams, bombers laying waste to the riders, and the Winnipeg Jets got a good win over Carolina. We're going to talk to David Aiken about this situation at a Saudi consulate where a journalist went in two weeks ago. Hasn't come out. Today is also an important day. It is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. We're going to speak to a man who went through just that. We're also going to meet a local Winnipeg filmmaker, a jack-of-all-trades of sorts, won an award over the weekend. He's going to tell us a little bit about his story. And a follow-up to a report that we told you about on Friday, about how Manitoba businesses are not satisfied with the job preparedness coming out of high school, with students coming out of high school. So we're going to speak to someone involved in the high school system in reaction to that story. Ever had a pedicure? (laughs) That's the best. Well, and my girlfriend said, hey, has Mackling ever had a pedicure? And I, I thought, I bet you Mackling's had a pedicure. Oh, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> so yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. I didn't. Really? No. Like, I already have abnormally soft feet. In fact, the first time I went Nobody for a pedicure. Nobody says that ever. Completely well, true. I have abnormally Compl- soft completely feet. Completely true. The lady said, oh, your feet are very soft. Really? Yes, yes. <laughs> Have you ever okay. heard of not, not, not a lot of hard labor going on in a Maclean household? Or? I don't know. If you were at my house this weekend, we would have put you to work. Lots mm-hmm. of work going around our house this weekend. But yes, a pedicure is an outstanding way to spend, uh, what, about 45 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, well, I went yesterday. My, my girlfriend, uh, we were out and about, and she says, Kay, we're going for a pedicure. And I said, what? And she said, let's go for a pedicure. And I I oh, okay. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. I just never had one, and I, I found I was like nervous going. We, we went to this place called Pro Nail Salon. It's on Regent by the Burger King. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know what to expect, and sat down and put my feet in the the fancy bath tub mm-hmm. that they have. I tried to figure out how to use the massage chair. That's the only reason. I mean, I like a pedicure, but I go for those massage massage chairs. I just sit there and like, I love that. I didn't like the massage chair at first because I found it a little too invasive. It was, yeah. like, it was like punching my back. And you got to turn off the seat portion because the the, bo- the bottom portion is really... Like, invasive? It's too, it's, it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once I figured out how to turn off the seat airbag oh my. and I found, I found a setting for my neck, yeah, that was great. But yeah, the pedicure was weird. I felt bad for the woman who was doing it because I kept... Fl- well, I'm flinchy. I'm ticklish. 
So there was there was one particular spot on my foot where I kept like flinching. I almost kicked her in the face. Oh no, that's not good. No, it's not, and it was embarrassing. I'm like, I felt like I was a white knuckle flyer. I was just clasping the seat, <laughs> and uh, it was horribly embarrassing. I sat there squirming. My girlfriend's Snapchatting this to her mom. She's oh, sending beautiful. her mom videos back home in Alberta, <laughs> and uh, then she started. She she pulls out a razor of some sort and started shaving the calluses on my feet. My feet feel smaller today. They feel great now. They feel really some good. Some places I don't I don't she even know if they use that anymore, now. those scrapers, because like there was all these concerns about how do they get them clean afterwards and all the rest? Like, uh, yeah. She had to take a second run at it. Yeah, I <laughs> bet. <laughs> what, were, what were those? You uh, do not have abnormally soft feet, no. unlike our co-host, mm-hmm. apparently. Well, that's true. Again, not a thing. I'll, I'll, let, you, gonna, I'll let you check it I out. Almost want, you I, no, I almost said I was going to, but no. <laughs> when Jackie and I started dating, uh, one of her friends was over at uh, her place one time and said, you got to touch Jack Greg's feet, Jackie says to her friend. <laughs> Really? <laughs> Never forget the I'm look. Gonna just, I'm gonna on take Alana's Jackie's face I'll take right both now. Their words for it. She blushed. She was like, "Oh my, they are very soft." <laughs> That's fine. I'll, I'm fine with wow. Jackie saying it. I'm fine with this Alana saying it. I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it with them. Are you okay with guys getting pedicures, McNabb? I don't know. Yes. What do you mean you don't yes. know? No, I just I get it. I think I think you should go for it. But then when I picture you going for like getting Why? your pedicure, I don't know. It bugs me. It's pretty close. Why does it bug you? I don't as soon as you wrote me yesterday that you were having a pedicure, I was like, yeah. I... Is it just, is it not masculine no, enough? not that. I is don't, it, is it, I, are I we invading a, a woman's sacred domain no. by going into the nail like, salon? I think you should. Like, if you have a rough foot, that's gross, too. So I get that. I don't know. My instant thought when you said that yesterday was like, huh. <laughs> like, I judged you. Set <laughs> my I, judging porch. I sat on my judging porch and petted my fake dog. And did the basset hound's the ears kind of perk up? Oh, was like, oh, Brent. Exactly. Yeah, we both judged you. Hmm. Did you go for the clear polish? What did, what did you get? What kind of finish did you get? I uh, I don't know. They they put on something. You didn't put polish on. No. I no. They, clear, they, man. Yeah, it was just some kind of a... Spray. They put some sort of gel now, on it. pedicure is one thing, but what about manicure? No, that it was just pedicure. Have you I been? Have done. Have, have you done been? It. No, I would have done it, but it was just uh, it was just the feet. I've filled in for Kathy Kennedy on Kinsman Jackbox Bingo a couple oh, yeah. times, and that's the best part about doing the show for Kathy because I go and uh, get my nails done. Oh yeah, I guess because so. there's close-up of, of your hands. Well, your yeah. hand is on TV yeah, yeah. for like 27 minutes. All those things are just about. Having a little time to yourself. So it's not really, you know, like if, if I'm not for or against the manicure, pedicure. I, I like just everyone needs an hour every uh, once in a while to sit the there and not think. What is the deal? There's like a nail salon in every corner and they're all it, like, it feels like they're all busy. They are always. You can't. And you, but all, even better than that, even when they are always busy. Yeah, we can put you in. And you're like, there's <laughs> <laughs> like 47 really people in like front it. of me. Don't worry. We'll get you <laughs> in. We'll get you in every time. And they do. I don't Why know. Why are you like, taking me it's, back it's, here it's amazing. dark room? I like it. One thing I, I, and she kind of looked, she sort of looked at me and realized, oh, this might be too much for them. They've got these weird hot stones mm. that they use to, I guess, massage your leg or whatever. Like your calf? Yeah. yeah. And as soon as she touched my skin, it was I just kind of had this full body convulsion. Like, whoa, what is that? You're burning me. 
I didn't say that, but she could tell that. that I, she then she ran it under the tap, and so it was like a like a warm stone, not a hot stone. Fantastic. Mm. Brett's so. getting in touch with his. Feminine side. I wonder how many of these businesses, if able to, like I often thought in the pedicure place, if they served a drink, people would really like that. And then you have cannabis legal in 48 hours, less than 48 hours. Eventually, would that become a business, right, for people? There was a study out this weekend about how if you smoke up and do yoga, it's better for you. Like, I start to think eventually in 30 years, are you going to do hot yoga? But it's going to be. I'm thinking, I'm thinking a place where I can go get a pedicure, smoke some weed, and watch a Blue Bombers game, life would be great. <laughs> It'd be like the best place ever. And then uh, you're talking about the yoga. You've got goat yoga, and I guess soon you're suggesting there'll be ganja yoga. That's what so. they're talking about, yeah. Winnipeg police are investigating a vicious assault that left one man with a serious eye injury over the weekend. Doug Thomas says he and his wife were at a drive through on Portage Avenue around 1.30 Saturday morning when they saw what appeared to be a homeless man being harassed in a bus shelter. When Thomas stepped in to help, he says that's when the attackers turned on him. Global's Austin Siragusa has the details. I just jumped out of the car and I ran her because I, need, I wanted to intervene. Doug Thomas was ordering food at a drive-thru when he saw a homeless man being attacked at a bus shelter near Portage Avenue. He was getting hurt. I could just, I could see because they weren't stopping. They were just kicking him. Thomas tried to pull the men away from the victim, but the suspects then focused on him and began punching him, even ripping his eye. It was real fast, and then I fell. And then next thing I know, I could just feel the kicks and blows, and I could hear my wife screaming. Thomas suffered scratches on his eye and his tear duct was torn, but further testing showed that his eyeball was still intact. Doug's wife Tracy was with him at the time. She said she was proud of what her husband did and the outcome could have been a lot worse. We're just glad that the man is okay. And we're just glad that uh, Doug's not going to lose his eye. We found out yesterday as soon as he was able to open. And despite suffering serious injuries, he says he wouldn't change what he did. If that was me, I would have wanted someone to intervene. And even though I got hurt, I I chose to step in. I chose to intervene. I didn't want that man to be hurt. I couldn't see that happen. So I would absolutely do it again. Austin Suragusa, Global News. If you go to our website, globalnews.ca or cjob.com, we have pictures of Thomas up in there. It looked really brutal Saturday when the, when the video first emerged of his eye injury. And I'm glad to hear at least it's not permanent, but he does still need some surgery and he'll be healing for a while. Well, that's a tough decision to make, to jump in, to intervene on behalf of someone you've never met, a special individual, I'll tell you that. We're going to revisit this conversation at 6.45 when we have coffee and talk. Would you step in? Would you be a good Samaritan? Kelly Moore, what was your reaction when you heard about this story? Well, I kind of felt bad for the husband trying to do the right thing, and I guess it's a reminder that you never know how these situations are going to turn. It was funny, as we were driving right by that area yesterday, my wife and I talked about this. And we arrived at the conclusion that perhaps the best thing to do would be to, you know, 911 right away and then let the perpetrators know, okay, the police have been notified, they're on the way. So that hopefully, A, you get them to back off of doing what they were doing to the homeless guy and you still can contribute without leaving yourself vulnerable uh, like Mr. Thomas. Do you think you would have the 
wherewithal to do that in that moment because it's so well, much of it is instinct, right? And so I wonder, I mean, I'd like to think we'd all run in and help, right? And then yeah. do, and do something, whether it's the phone call or yeah. actually intervening and, you know, throwing your fists up or what have you. But I don't know, do you have that, like, do you have that much time to think about it and be like, oh, let's assess the situation. What if these guys have a weapon? Yeah. What if it turns ugly? Like, you just, your, your instinct, I think, would be to get in there. I hope. I think for a lot of us, that is our first instinct is to jump in there. I've often said it would all depend on who I was with, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm with my boys, just me and the boys, that, that's a tough call. I'm not leaving oh. them at the side of the road or leaving them even in the car while I go and take care of something like that. Uh, but if I'm on my own, I'd like to think that that's the action I would take and hopefully a cell phone in hand and 911 being dialed at the very same time. It's unfortunate right now. I think a lot of people realize that police resources are stretched to the maximum yeah. and calling 911 probably not going to have a huge effect unless you get lucky that mm. there's a hole in in what's going on elsewhere in the city. Uh, I, that's just kind of a fact right now. Fortier, what do you think you do? Well, me, I'm a small guy. I'm only 5'6", so stepping in there kind of scared me a bit because, yeah, like, I'm tiny. So, uh, like, you know, maybe if I was in my car, like, honk the horn or roll down the window and yell at them or something, but, uh, yeah, getting that kind of situation is hard for me. Yeah, Kelly, I think, raised a good, a good suggestion, though, and that's something maybe to keep in mind. I don't know that I would have thought of that initially. I, I don't I, I don't know how to answer the question. Yeah, I'd right. like to say, yeah, I'd jump in, but I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. The other thing you could also do, and you tr- you would try to do it unbeknownst to them, is, is snap a couple of quick picks so that if something does happen to you, uh, they don't know you've taken the picture on your phone and the police have you know, some pretty, pretty recoverable evidence to try and track these guys down. And again, I agree with Loren 100% when, you know, these are things you can think about after the fact, but in the heat of the battle, do you think of them? So preparedness, I guess, is the thing that I would say. And then, and then you have to make the decision after that, whether you're going to get involved, but I don't think the thugs are going to know how long it's going to take the police to get there. Well, and you wonder, like, with everything that's going on with uh, the meth situation, and, like, you're not, it's not a level playing field necessarily anymore, right? But a cruiser could just happen to be on on Portage at that particular time. No, no, that's true. What is the law, too? Because I'm just looking this up now. There's the Good Samaritan Act, right? And what are you, like, if you sat back and just watched them beat the living daylights out of this person and he dies... And everyone just sat there and watched that. Is like you know, where where where? When is it on the public just to do the decent human thing? That's true. I mean, you know, not to. I'll make the connection here. Seinfeld very right. famously did their their finale was surrounded was about that the Good Samaritan stuff where they sat and laughed at this guy while he was getting robbed and it was used for comedic purposes. But you raise an, a good point, Loren. The, Are we responsible so to step in? The law, if I'm, if this is updated properly, and I think it is, says that anyone who provides aid, emergency medical services to anyone who's in an accident or is at the immediate scene of the emergency, you're not liable for damages for injury or death to the victim caused by the person's acts or omissions unless grossly negligent. So, like, if you did something to help and that made it worse, yeah. you wouldn't be liable. But I, I'm not clear. If I just sat there, On the is that not gross negligence if you right. just sat there and watched that? Like, just, I mean. Yeah. I think if you sat there and did absolutely nothing, you know, that that's one thing. But to not put yourself in peril, I think, is also important. 
Something is going to be legal in Manitoba in T-minus, what, 48 hours, Lorraine? Yeah, I think we're at 41 hours and counting as the clock winds down on the legalization of cannabis. New researchers... New research is showing just how much weed might impact drivers who smoke before they get behind the wheel. A study put young Canadians in a driving simulator and found their performance declined significantly as soon as they were presented with any distractions and that there were lingering effects even five hours after they smoked. The tests were done by McGill University and funded by CAA. Erica Miller is with CAA Manitoba and joins us on the phone now. Good morning. Good morning. So, Erica, just walk us through this. That what stood out with from for you in this study with these young Canadians? Well, we've done previous polling that found one in five young Canadians uh, believe that they're good or uh, better drivers when they're stoned as that when they are sober. But after being put to the test in this driving simulation, a large percentage of those young drivers in the study actually reported that they don't feel safe to drive after having consumed cannabis, even five hours after use. That is a big, big standout item for us, for sure. The five hours is the standout. Yes, the five hours. Uh, This study, I mean, randomly, they randomized the testing in terms of uh, testing their driving performance after cannabis consumption. They did some baseline tests with no cannabis first to see what their driving performance looked like, and then they had them consume, and then they tested them about one hour, three hours, and five hours after they had consumed that cannabis. And at all points throughout the study, uh, those participants said that they just did not feel safe. They did not feel ready to drive. So this is uh, some self-reflection after the test and uh, post-test interviewing, Erica. Yes, absolutely. And in total, like those participants, they were doing this test over four days and they did 10 different tasks. So it was a lot of you know, they were under the gun a lot of the time doing these uh, driving-related things. I mean, they did a lot of things in terms of steering, braking, um, lane deviation, obstacle avoidance, all things that you would uh, expect to do in the car when you're actually driving your vehicle. This is a complex driving simulator. It's supposed to mimic real-life driving situations. You mentioned that there are there were some who say that, who thought that they perform better behind the wheel when they are stoned. And, the, you know, we've seen that on our text line here at 204-780-6868 a lot over the years as this discussion has been sort of brewing, that people think that they can drive better when they're under the influence. Why do you think there is that perception out there with a lot of people? Well, you know, uh, I don't know that I could speak for everybody on that, but, I mean, when we're talking about our previous polling, it just seems like perhaps these folks you know, they feel like they're used to it, right? They they are recreational users. They feel like they're used to it. But the reality is, I mean, this polling, this study that we did, used recreational users. These were people who uh, have been smoking marijuana recreationally. They were smoking um, at least once in the last three months or up to not more than four times a week. So these people are the people who, you know, they were the ones in the study before saying, yeah, I think I could drive better if I was stoned. But after having done it, they decided they changed their mind. And and we're hoping that the results of this trial give people food for thought and get them to reflect on, you know, whether or not they choose to consume. That's their choice. But our our number one key message for folks is if you're consuming, don't get behind the wheel.
I know later this morning, the province is going to release what it's calling its phase two of its public education campaign, where they'll unveil how they want to, you know, tell people more about what the impacts can be on cannabis. But there's so much we just don't know right now, Erica, about about what what the results can be, how how we might perform when we're driving. And I think the takeaway here probably is that five hours. Five hours is a pretty long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And this, uh, the results of this study really support Canada's lower-use cannabis uh, guidelines, which recommend waiting six hours after consumption. And we would encourage all Canadians, whether they, you know, especially young Canadians, but all Canadians who choose to consume cannabis, to make a plan to go home safely if they are choosing to consume, whether that's taking tap car or jumping on Winnipeg Transit, having a friend drive them who's sober, like a DD, um, or just simply waiting it out and waiting until they feel better five or six hours later to get behind the wheel. We absolutely need more research and more um, earmarked funds for research that delve into this driving and cannabis use issue. Um, and we'd love to see more of that coming from the federal and provincial governments. Erica, a lot of these conversations feel similar to conversations we had uh, surrounding and still have surrounding drinking and driving. I know there are lots of people who uh, have been stopped and convicted, charged with drinking and driving six, seven, eight, nine hours after they've consumed their last drink. I know personally people who have been pulled over and blown over and at least blown a warning after sleeping off what they thought was the night before, the effects of the night before, and are still in trouble. And we still hear from people who say that they can drive just as well after a few drinks, if not better, uh, than when they are sober. So a lot of these conversations are very reminiscent and, and are the same as we have with alcohol. Absolutely. And we know that driving high is driving impaired, just like with alcohol. And it, because it affects your coordination, you know, all those decision-making and concentration aspects that you need when you're behind the wheel. Same thing with alcohol. And our bottom line is if you don't feel safe to drive, then don't drive. Whether that's, you know, you're one of those people who says, I don't feel good the next day, then, then you know, find another way. Take a tap car to work or, you know, call in sick or something like that. It's... It's knowing yourself to some degree, but it's also understanding that there has been research and the research here today is saying, you know, it's important for people to wait five or six hours to to let that significant effect on their concentration and their reaction time minimize so that they can get behind the wheel safely. Saudi Arabia has rejected Brett threats to punish it over the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul, saying the kingdom would retaliate against any sanctions with tougher measures, the official state news agency said on Sunday. Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi was last seen alive entering Saudi Arabia's consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd. He was there to get documents he needed for his impending marriage. Turkey says what happened next is that Khashoggi was beaten, tortured, killed, and then dismembered. His body whisked away by what Turkey believes were agents dispatched with the knowledge of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The kingdom says those claims are baseless. The Turks say they have audio tape to prove otherwise. 
Khashoggi's disappearance has severely tested the Trump administration's close relationship with the Saudi government. Now, the comments from the Saudis came after U.S. President Donald Trump threatened severe punishment for Riyadh if it turned out Khashoggi, a prominent critic of Saudi authorities and a legal resident of the United States, was killed in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. President Trump weighed the options out loud during an interview with Leslie Stahl, which appeared on 60 Minutes last night. Would you consider imposing sanctions as a bipartisan group of senators have proposed? Well, it depends on what the sanction is. I'll give you an example. They are ordering military equipment. Everybody in the world wanted that order. Russia wanted it. China wanted it. We wanted it. We got it. And we got all of it. Every bit of it. So would you cut that off? Do I? Well, I tell you what I don't want to do. Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon, all these companies. I don't want to hurt jobs. I don't want to lose an order like that. And you know, there are other ways of uh, punishing. punishing, to use a word that's a pretty harsh word, but it's true. Tell everybody what's at stake here. You know, th- this well, is... Well, there's a-, a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. And maybe especially so because this man was a reporter. There's something, you'll be surprised to hear me say that, there's something really terrible and disgusting about that if that were the case. So we're going to have to see. We're going to get to the bottom of it, and there will be severe punishment. Now, Saudi Arabia's reaction to Trump's comments got right to the economic and political point. The kingdom affirms its total rejection of any threats and attempts to undermine it, whether by threatening to impose economic sanctions, using political pressure, or repeating false accusations. This from the official Saudi press agency, which quoted an unnamed government source. And in Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau has yet to make any substantive declarations on the situation. So far, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been reluctant to say much about Khashoggi's disappearance. This uh, particular case is, of course, of of concern, and we join with our allies around the world in uh, uh, expressing uh, serious uh, uh, issues with, uh, with these reports. That was David Aiken in Ottawa, and he actually joins us on the phone now. Good morning, David. Morning, guys. So the NDP and others as well, vocal critics looking for some stronger language from the prime minister. What could possibly come next? Is there something stronger the prime minister can actually do? Uh, Well, I suppose there is. I mean, we can get Saudi Arabia's attention. Well, first of all, a little backstory, of course, we're already in a diplomatic spat with Saudi Arabia. Remember uh, a a couple of months ago, a, a tweet appeared on Canada's foreign affairs account you know, demanding that Saudi Arabia live up to, uh, you know, some, some human rights, international human rights rules, and release uh, some uh, bloggers, that activists that are in jail in Saudi Arabia. That tweet put the Saudis' nose all out of joint, and they kicked our diplomats out, just about broke off diplomatic relations, uh, said they were going to pull every Saudi university student out of school here in Canada, pull them home, um, until we apologized. We have not yet apologized. So the situation between Saudi Arabia and Canada is uh, still uh, very chill. But what what was weird about that, Saudi Arabia got it um, all twisted out of shape, but was going to continue to buy armored vehicles made in London, Ontario. It's a big, huge, multi-billion dollar deal. Uh, General Dynamics of Canada has, with the Saudis, employs a lot of people in London. So um, there's a lot of people who say, and you heard sort of the clip from from Donald Trump there, if we really want to get Saudi Arabia's attention on any number of issues, Khashoggi or this uh, uh, human rights issues, stop sending them weapons. 
And there will there's a, a number of people in Canada who think the Trudeau government ought to do just that, suspend the export permit uh, or withdraw it completely until, um, you know, the, the Saudi, as I say, until we get uh, Saudi Arabia's attention. So that will likely be the, the one of the areas where people who are concerned about this Khashoggi uh, case start today. But there are other things, too. Trump talked to in that in that clip he played. Trump talked about other things that can be done. And one of the other things is sanctions involving the Magnitsky Act. And that's we've used the Magnitsky Act primarily for Russian bad behavior. And this is where you uh, restrict visas of individual people in the regime. You restrict their assets. You seize their assets. And uh, that would be something that the U.S. Congress would almost certainly look at uh, with regards to the Saudi royal family. If, in fact, it's shown that the Saudis... Uh, were involved in Khashoggi's disappearance. So, David, do you think the Prime Minister to this point is being as soft with his language because he's waiting for more information? Or is it because of sort of the history we have, and you mentioned sort of the, the tiff we had over Twitter, is that is that weighing in more heavily? Uh, I'd like to ask him that. And it's uh, unfortunately just the circumstances of, of last week were, were such that he was overseas at a Francophonie summit in Armenia. And that's where that clip you heard of Trudeau, that's what he said on Friday uh, as that summit wrapped up. And then, of course, he was traveling back here. Uh, today, he's in Toronto hanging out with some uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, and there's no uh, press availability on his schedule. So I guess we'd like to find out. But we do see some very forceful denunciations of Saudi behavior from the Brits, the Germans, uh, from the French, uh, from American senators. We're all over the Sunday talk shows in the U.S. yesterday saying, you know, this is one issue. If the Saudis did do what they were involved with Khashoggi's disappearance, I mean, this is going to unify Republicans and Democrats. Uh, uh, Marco Rubio was saying uh, it'll likely be unanimous in Congress. It'll be swift. It'll be tough sanctions of some sort. Um, and all, uh, all we've seen from this end, as I say, was that comment on Friday from the prime minister. And last night, our foreign affairs minister, Christian Freeland, she just retweeted the U- United Kingdom statement on this. Didn't even put out our own statement. Just sort of went, yeah, what, what they say. And that's really all we've heard from Canada on this point. Um, and it's just the beginning of the day here in Ottawa, as it is in Winnipeg. And we're going to start asking questions about what is Canada? What are we, you know, we, we don't have a diplomat over there. How, how are we going to get Saudi Arabia's attention on this matter? David Aiken, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. No problem. If you see a candle flickering in the window of your neighbor's home tonight, could be for a special reason and a special person. Yeah, many people might not know this, but October 15th is actually Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. The goal is to shine a light on what can often feel like a dark and silent world that comes with losing a baby. Michael Anderson has been working to bring more awareness to not only this day, but to what moms and dads and families might feel when they're going through this and how you, how, how all of us can help. He joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd like to share with everybody else a very special name as well, and that is of Kayla Lynn, who would have been eight years old this year. Can you tell us a bit about Kayla? Uh, yeah, so my my wife and I, uh, our first pregnancy uh, went full term, 40 weeks. And uh, I just, that morning, I remember waking up, my wife had some pains and we thought it was, you know, a normal labor. So, you know, excited we threw everything into the car and headed over to the hospital and it wasn't until you get there and you're 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 in there and you're going through the whole 
process with the ultrasound that you could hear a pin drop in the room and understand that something's not right. And in our case, um, my, my, there was an abruption and uh, instantly that pain is, is what, what had happened. So then we had had a stillbirth at full term. So, you know, devastating as that is, um, you, you kind of turn and you look around and you, you know, you look for anybody and, and, and there is, there is nobody in You have your family and you have your friends, but even with, in that situation, they can't really, you know, know what you're going through, so to speak. Michael, this is hard to, to tell the story, hard to listen to it, but there's an important reason for sharing this story. What is that reason? We, we joined up with the walk to remember because we wanted to raise awareness. Um, this happens for many different reasons. Um, but knowing that other people with similar stories are out there and sometimes they're not, you know, they're, they're too afraid to talk or they're not sure who to talk to. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's people, you know, like them out there that, that have gone through this situation that can understand that can just be that shoulder, um, you know, for these people. Wanting to speak out is important because it allows others to know that they're not alone. And yet I think that there's this taboo that comes with it. You know, nobody, my myself uh, had a miscarriage at eight weeks in between my first and second child. And I think there's this thing you don't want to say it because you feel like you did something wrong or you don't even want to speak to it, which is why I think when you talk, Michael, people, people listen. What kind of reaction did you get even this weekend? I know you had about 100 people gathered um, at the park to, to walk for their babies that weren't born. Do you still get that from people that they're they're scared to even speak out because of that stigma that might come with it? I think so. Um, I, I know that as the years, you know, we're eight years now, my wife and I, and and it becomes a lot easier to talk about because you you kind of jump on this, you know, you, you become one of those people that's now advocating for something or pushing, you know, trying to push the rock up the hill type or boulder up the hill. But yes, there there are definitely people that come to the walk and, you know, and they, they kind of sit in the background and they, they don't, they don't talk much or they don't. And that's okay. Um, because you know what, I remember our first year of the walk and I didn't want to, I didn't first of all want to go. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't, you know, there was, there was so many different things. So yeah, it's, it's still out there. It's definitely, and people are still struggling with it. Obviously, you know, a loss of a child, uh, stillbirth, miscarriage, and like I said, it happens for so many different reasons that you, 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 there's a lot of taking time and understanding why and what did I do wrong or what did we do wrong? Was everything, you know, did we, did we not do something right three months ago or whatever the case? So, yeah, it's definitely out there still. Michael, I know people who have, have had multiple miscarriages. I think one person I know has had seven when you what, what it, it's obviously a difficult subject you don't want to you're reluctant to bring it up with this person so how should someone speak to someone who has gone through this or is going through something like this i, I always say that you know like i said at first it was i didn't even want to talk to anybody at first um but i would think that you know the compassion uh compassion is big you know just just understanding that, you know, this is always a tough thing for me to say, but when you 
when you go to the hospital, you know, and your wife's pregnant or you, you know, whoever it is, you're expecting to come home with something, a baby. And when you don't, that's devastating. So it's very tough for, you know, for family members, for friends, for people to talk about it. But I always just say, use compassion, lots of hugs, lots of, you know, probably the saving grace for us for the first couple of weeks was people just dropping food off at our house. You know, like little things like that, I, you know, and, and little, I just, all I can ever say to people is please just, you know, talk to people. Um, it, it's very difficult, but you have to talk to people because you have to be able to get it out there because your story might help somebody else. Mike, right? Mike you have two other children. Why is it important yeah. that they talk about, know about their big sister? Uh, very important. Our, our son, Caden, uh, he's our rainbow baby. So he was born 11 months after our daughter, uh, Kayla. Um, but yes, it's very important. We have a four-year-old daughter, Carlin, as well. And we go to the cemetery all the time. We talk about it all the time. We've got pictures in the house, candles in the house, stuffed animals, teddy bears. You know, it's, we have the, the teddy bear in the family pictures, um, you know, we a funny little story is we you know when Caden started going to preschool, he told us he told his teacher about his older sister, and the teacher says, "No, you don't have an older sister." And he says, "Oh yeah, I do. I have an older sister. She's in heaven." And and the teacher, you know, kind of thrown off by this four year old, right? And you know, but at the time he had it dialed in. He knew the story. He knew what was going on. So it, it's okay. Uh, kids are actually probably you know, the best thing because they just tell like it is and say what's on their mind. They don't try and hold anything back. Um, and, and with that saying, um, you know, I, I, I always look and say to other people, we have two kids now, um, you know, things can get better. Um, things can, you know, be positive going forward. Uh, you know, you, you just never, you never stop you know, giving up, you never, you, you know, you just have to always look forward. So. Michael Anderson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time and the access, and uh, we appreciate what you're doing to bring awareness to this. Great. Thank you very much for What's having it? me. Lane McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB and working in this job we get the opportunity to meet all kinds of interesting people and when we got this email I just couldn't resist the headline on this news release is on a roll and roll is spelled R-O-L-E Winnipeg filmmaker celebrates double ACTRA award nomination double screening in Toronto fresh off the set of his first Feature local Winnipeg filmmaker B.J. Vero is showing no signs of slowing down. A jack of all trades on both sides of the camera. Vero is nominated for outstanding performance by a male artist in a short and best stunt performance at this now this now past Friday's 2018 Actra Manitoba Awards. B.J. is here in studio with us. B.J., welcome to the start. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Did you so? Did you win the awards? <laughs> uh, yeah, I went uh, one for two. I won the best performance for a short uh, by a male uh, in the short film Fisher Cove, directed by my good buddy Sean Skeen, 
And uh, I did not win the stunt award, but it went to my good friend Jeff Strom. Okay. Now, what was the, the stunt performance that you were nominated for? What did you do to get nominated? Uh, in the stunt that I did, uh, um, the other character had me by the head, and he was walking me backwards in a, uh, the front hall of the house. And uh, there's a, uh, a few stairs um, kind of leading to the garage area, and he, and he slams my head down, and I have to fall. I kind of fell down the stairs while pancaking out on the ground. So <laughs> bit of a face slap. Wow. Yeah. Greg is grimacing pretty hard right now. <laughs> well, uh, as a guy who suffered a few concussions and a, and a brain injury once upon a time, that kind of gives my uh, head a little bit of pain there. How, how into this are you in terms of the abuse that your body takes? I'm, I'm trying to look at your hands and your knuckles to see if there's any evidence <laughs> of broken fingers or anything like yeah. that. It's got to be tough on the body. Uh, you know, uh, it just depends on the day. Um, it, for the most part, it's pretty good. Um, our, our stunt coordinators here uh, in Manitoba, they, they look after us really well. And anytime you see a movie where someone's taking a good bump and they got a long sleeve shirt on, that was probably someone pulling uh, some magic behind the scenes to make sure we could throw some pads on our knobby elbows and and our knees. It's it's when you're wearing the muscle shirts and you can't <laughs> pad up or do anything like that where it's going to be a bit of a rougher day. But, uh, yeah, it's good. Um, for the most part, no, no major injuries. I think bumps and bruises just kind of come with it. So you are a director. You're, you do some acting. You do some stunt work. Is that common for somebody to be that involved, to, to be the jack of all trades? Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I think being Canadian, uh, we have to wear a lot of hats. Um, you know, we, we go and we, we, we got to chase our own funding. And, uh, and the community here in Winnipeg is so tightly knit that on any given day, you might end up in front of the camera. I, personally, uh, I, I do consider myself more of a, a writer-director, and I love doing the stunt work. But in terms of doing the acting stuff in the short... Um, that was just a, a really awesome opportunity that I used as a director to grow, find find ways to communicate with my with my cast, and uh, you know we we can figure it out from there. So when you see a performance from Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born, when he's clearly uh, one of the two stars of the show, but we know that he's the director, tell us about the challenges of of balancing off those different roles. Well. Um, yeah, I've done some. I've done a few shorts where uh, where I've acted in it and I've directed. And uh, sometimes it's it's interesting. The vision is very clear. You know what you need to do. Um, you just got to make sure you actually execute. Because then you'll watch the playback and you're like, eh, I didn't quite get it where I wanted it to be. Okay, we're going back to the uh, to the trenches. Let's go do it again. Um, uh, luckily for this one, uh, Sean Skeen was directing. Uh, he's a, a stunt coordinator here in Manitoba, a good buddy of mine. And uh, so we we had a lot of opportunity to talk and feel it out and play basically make you it have, make uh, it great. Yeah, but your feature directorial debut is to be released next year, The Return. What's The Return? Yes, The Return is a science fiction horror film uh, starring Richard Harmon of The 100 and a whole bunch of local actors, uh, Sarah Thompson, Echo Perisky. And uh, it's basically your classic take on a haunted house story, but then we add in the science fiction veneer and things start to get a little weird. So we wanted to kind of take that that convention and turn it on its ear and, and make it really weird. And I think that's what's going to make it stand out as a feature. Last night when we had went downtown to the Jets game, we parked on uh, Princess Street because we could only get so far because it was blocked off. They were shooting a film there. And I think a lot of people are becoming even more aware of all the films that are being made here in Manitoba. Is it just the tax credit that makes Manitoba attractive? Or has that just set the table to create a genuine um, uh, 
resource here for for yeah, Hollywood. I think it's I think it's uh, it's what you've touched on there. Um, Winnipeg has been growing so much, especially since the late '90s. The tax credit obviously is a great incentive, and it brings a lot of uh, a lot of money in from the U.S. and it helps kind of promote uh, keeping uh, the infrastructure here growing and getting bigger. But uh, the crews and the cast and the talent that we have here are more than capable to handle what we're bringing. So, um, you know, whether that existed or not, I think the talent exists here and the potential is limitless. We got to get out of here, but uh, where can we learn more about your work online? Um, I'd say hit us up on Facebook at Strata Studios, um, or you can find me personally on uh, social media. It's my name, B.J. Vero, V-E-R-O-T. follow-up to something we talked about on Friday. Well, the headline last week was Manitoba businesses aren't satisfied with job preparedness in high school. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business released a survey showing that 61% of employers in Manitoba believe high schools aren't adequately preparing young people for today's jobs. CFIB saying that small and mid-sized businesses are having difficulty filling jobs, pointing to issues like motivation and attitude in today's youth. Which leads us to our next guest. Shankar Singh is a program and support teacher with the Winnipeg School Division and joins us in studio now. Good morning. Good morning. So when you saw that headline, uh, management businesses not satisfied with what schools are doing, what was your response? Well, first of all, the question is always why. Like, what are they trying to blame us for now? But um, <laughs> when reading at it, it, it's it's based on how they look at it, right? So it's all their perspective at, at the information that they're collecting. When you are in talking to today's young people, the teenagers coming and going from high school, uh, do you think there's any fairness to the truth? There might be issues with motivation or attitude? Well, I mean, kids can be kids, right? And I think the, the big thing with high school is that we're, we're not going to streamline them. So, yeah, they've got issues with all of that piece, but there's also a lot of really dedicated and engaged students out there that we see in school every day that are looking for work and that are trying to get work. So you see it in all on like all ends of the spectrum. Well, we all like to point the finger and use the word millennials, right? And the mm. next generation, and, and I can't even believe I'm, you know, 41 years old and now saying, I'm not so sure about these to, these kids today if they're working hard or studying enough or even have that motivation to work. Uh, you, you don't see that in what you're doing. No, I don't. I mean, I think that the times have changed and the way that we look at it in the high school system has changed. And over the last few years, we've been looking more at uh, instead of looking at career education, that whole piece is simply a high school problem where it's grade 9 to 12, that's far too late. So we look at it really from a kindergarten to grade 12 problem. And, and I mean, the research says that if you start talking to kids after grade 5, it's too late. So, I mean, from where we come from, we have a lot of programs in place that allow kids to do co-ops, do internships, uh, get credit for working in apprenticeships and kind of all the different realms, as well as is volunteering to get experience. So we're always looking for partners within the small business industry just for any community that will help take kids for a variety of those things. Uh, But it's also about exposure to what's out there, and it's about um, kids learning their skills, their interests, and kind of tying all that together to find their passion. So one of the things that we I was curious about uh, when it comes to motivation, if if these businesses are seeing students who aren't really motivated, could it could it have anything to do with the fact that young people now want to do their own thing as opposed to go work for someone else? At least not all young people, but maybe some young people. Like uh, so many kids want to be YouTubers, right? 
Yeah. Well, then there's a piece of that. I mean, a lot of a lot of kids want to become entrepreneurs, run their own business, do their own hours. Uh, but you get the other side of it, too, where you get the kids that are wanting to just find something and don't really know what's out there. So they're just looking for something to motivate them and they need that extra piece. And for schools, we do our level best to expose students what we can. But any partnership with the community and with industry is like pivotal in making that happen for schools. So having guest speakers, having uh, maybe tours of a facility. I know they talked about the trades a lot in that report. And trades is a fickle thing because they have to have the apprenticeship piece. There's a union piece, but there's also the accreditation piece and safety. Uh, but there is the province does ma- have a program called the high school apprenticeship program that we're actively trying to get students engaged in uh, that would allow students to be able to basically dabble in working with a company of their choice. If they say they want to become an, a mechanic, for example, they go work any mechanic and they just get that experience on the job. And that's what gets those kids engaged. They get to see the relevance of their learning by doing something. So one of the things that the report also pointed to was this whole motivational piece. And our question of the day was on the day when this report came out was, is this up to the schools to create an environment where kids feel motivated? And how do you create a situation where kids feel self-motivation? How do you instill that in an individual? And we wanted to know, is that the school's job? Is there uh, a parental piece or is it a combination of both? And, And how do you, do we know how to instill? Can you instill a work ethic in young people? Well, I think we have to have a standard, but I think you're right. It comes from more than just the schools. It's got to come from parents as well, community members that they may deal with if they happen to be a part of any volunteer organizations. Um, it, it takes a village, as they say, right? And really, it comes down to those experiences for the kid. Can we force a student to become motivated? No. But can we you know, create experiences where they're going to become engaged and when they're going to learn work ethic by being held to a standard, being punctual, by being attendant, by having all those things in schools that kind of teach about that. And when we have students on a work placement, that's where they really get to learn what that's like. So if a high school student, say 16 years old, is going out to go work at a Tim Hortons, they know they have to be at work with their uniform on at a certain time, and they're learning some of that piece. So the more experiences we can give them, and the more the parents talk about it at home, just about, you know, what's it like to work, what's their life like at work, what are their friends' life like. I mean, kids tend to know what's around them. They know what their mom and dad do. They know emergency services people, like they know what they see. And the more you can broaden that and see what that's like. I mean, the schedule you guys have is very different than the schedule I have, right? You were just saying, you're here at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. So a student doesn't know that. So just learning what's out there. You mentioned the idea that, and we're talking to Shankar Singh, who's with the Winnipeg School Division about this uh, report from the business community saying school, kids are not being prepared well enough for jobs uh, when they're in high school. You mentioned that if we talk about it after grade five, it's too late. You mean uh, talking about career or introducing them to co-op experiences. What should we be doing before these kids basically are 10 or 11 years old when it comes to getting that conversation going? At that age, it really has come to exposure of what the world of work is like. I mean, we're not trying to force them into a job because they're generally too young. But just learning what's out there, um, if, if they're able to do a tour, for example, if they're able to hear from a guest speaker, just doing activities in school and explaining how the math the numeracy and the literacy of what they are doing links to what they would be doing in the real world. And that kind of starts that conversation about what it's like to go to work every day. And then from there, as they get older, you build more into those specifics of particular jobs and resume building and those skill sets that they need to be able to go out and get a job. We as parents aren't always making it sound good to 
kids because I might come home someday and my husband will say, <laughs> how was the day? And I'll be like, I don't want to talk about it. And the next day I'll say, how was your day? And he says, let's just, let's just watch a show. <laughs> and so here you got your kids at home hearing, and I love my job, but you know, you, you're also trying to maybe set an example to do something uh-huh. that you like. And then when you're doing something that you're loving or passionate about, how do we pass that on to our kids if we're not talking positively about our workday experience? I think it's interesting too. Uh, Jeff Forche and Brett McGarry, I know you'll back me up on this. I hear it in this building all the time. I've have heard it for 10 years. I got into radio because I didn't want to deal with math. And there's so much math <laughs> in this job. And so I think some sometimes it's that reality check for young people who think that they want to do something, right? And give them that opportunity to walk in the door and see behind the scenes and go, oh, like they're just talking on the radio from 6 till 10. Like a lot of people are under the impression we wake up at 5.15, jump in the shower, walk in the door at 5.55 and leave at 10.05. That's yeah. the impression, right? Yeah. But there's a lot more to it. Do you think that's part of the equation in terms of kids understanding what's involved to get from A to B and what happens really on that job? Well, in the way the way I describe career education when I'm talking about it to other teachers is that the career education piece is really bringing that context to the content. So it really explains why it's important and what the relevancy piece is to everything that we're learning in any course. But you're right. You do see a lot of people say, well, I don't want to do math or I don't want to do this. And so I'm going to go down that road. I'm never going to need this in my life. Hold on. Well, and how many times do kids ask, why do I need to know this? And so it's our job as educators to be able to answer that. And I'm sure parents get asked that question at home too. Are there ever ever any times though where as educators you kind of go, huh, well, you know, you... (laughs) When it comes to dissecting a frog, you might not really need to know how to do that down the road. Well, there's a specific place for that kind of a skill, right? But then you talk about the skill. But, I mean, there's always going to be times where you might be stumped as an educator. And part of that is always telling kids, yeah, well, I'll get you a better answer tomorrow. Let me look into that for you. Uh, But, I mean, in something as specific as that in a science class, there would be a direct application to, like, one type of field, right? Whereas something like you're looking at a math problem or problem solving as a skill that's broad like like you said so many jobs including the one that you're in use that as a skill and have to use math every day the apprenticeship they talk about in the in that paper all those skilled trades if you can't do math we hear people every day well they're not going to go to university so they'll go to the trades programs that's not how that works and people need to understand that those pieces are different depending on what type of field they're going to be in but they're all relevant there's only one place i've ever used trigonometry and that's building a house I'll tell you that right now. Yep. So, best place to learn triangles is trying to make a roof. The you same. got it. Pitch, <laughs> the pitch, the sine, the cosine, all that comes into effect, and the tangent when you're trying to stick frame a roof. I'll tell you, it comes in very handy. That's right. The Start on Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.